Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos. And I have an episode that I'm really excited about, which is going to be a prediction episode, the first of its kind. So I wanted to talk a little bit about something that's been on my mind, spoken a lot about this with partners and clients, and think it's something that's pretty interesting, potentially looming on the horizon in 10 to 20 years, which is the potential adoption of non-attorney ownership of law firms which is something that's been in place, if you guys haven't heard, for the last couple of years. And I'll, I'll do a quick recap for anyone who's not kind of up to the news. But basically, we have very interesting precedent with Arizona, who decided to basically not follow one of the recommended rules from the ABA, which is uh, Rule of Professional Conduct 5.4. I'm reading this from a definition, which states that law firms are barred from offering ownership or other investment slash revenue sharing opportunities to non-lawyers. So it sounds pretty simple, but there's a lot of really interesting implications of this. Another state that's been flirting with this is Utah that has kind of a separate but interesting experiment going on. They're, they're treating things sandbox, but it's all in the name of access to justice. And I'm going to get into why I think that's kind of interesting in and of itself. But just for the sake of this episode, I don't want to predict whether this is going to happen across all 50 states. But. I do want to think about what the consequences will be if it all happens. So with that in mind, let's kind of get started. And by the way, too, a lot of this stuff is going to lead back into some practices that you should probably be thinking about, regardless of whether we have something like this looming on the horizon or not. So um, I don't think you're going to be not served uh, trying to implement some of the things or acting as if, so to speak. So probably worth a listen, even if you think crazy and there's no way this is ever going to happen. So anyways, let's get into it. So. When we kind of think about this, if we want to take the practice of the law completely out of it, if we just want to think about this as an industry, like, you know, an alien doing some sort of a uh, you know science project or something like that, right? Legal is a situation that is essentially a walled garden, right? If we don't have the ability to invest, if non-attorneys don't have the ability to partner own with law firms, then they are limited from what other industries are, are able to do, right? So it's like a walled garden. And I want to bring another walled garden into the discussion because it's kind of exciting what's happening. And when you kind of see the gears of the free market kind of arranging around these things, the implications can be really, really exciting. So I want to kind of compare this to the cannabis market, which is something that, I mean, God, if (laughs) you haven't heard about what's going on there, then you've definitely been hiding under a rock. But we have a situation where something that was not open to professional capital investors you know, businesses being formed is not even open yet, but still being tons of stuff moving in there. You know, again, this isn't something that's been approved nationwide yet, but even on a state by state basis, we see so much excitement, so much money pouring in, so many jobs being created just because something that was previously not able to be invested in is now able to be invested in, right? So what's been happening in the cannabis market? We've had a lot of situations where smart money has been pouring money into businesses, making bets that once things end up opening up, then they're going to be able to take a huge first mover advantage, win market share, 
and take over the market, just like you know any other market that's been new ever since, right? So this is potentially what I think is looming for legal if this ends up being a situation that's the case. And there's some other implications about what's going to happen when those things happen. So actually, it's, it's kind of funny too. So I want to bring in a personal story. <laughs> this is actually really funny. We have a firm that we were working with. I'm not going to say their name, but it was actually one of our first clients that we ended up working with on our webinar program. These guys were an estate planning firm that was based out of Phoenix. So shortly after the rule ended up being passed by the Arizona State Bar, they ended up getting acquired. And it's probably one of the best reasons to lose a client. So I'm really, really happy for them. But they ended up getting acquired by a financial services partner that they had previously had more of a referral relationship with. So with acquisitions on the table, it completely changes the equation because now we have a much more fungible asset that you can sell as a law firm. And I'm sure some of you guys are maybe thinking about, wow, wouldn't that be cool if I could sell my law firm? But with the opportunity to get acquired and with the intent of people wanting to acquire come a lot of other consequences, right? So um, once we have capital in the equation, you know, it really just kind of opens things up, right? So there's there's no reason. I'll just kind of say this as far as what we've done. I get the opportunity to speak with thousands of law firms from a lot of the, you know, kind of mainstream practice areas in terms of you know, bankruptcy and family law and blah, 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 blah. I also have a lot of friends who work for white shoe law firms. Like I know people who work with AMLAW top two, top one firms. And basically, I understand how things work there as well. But just kind of the general formula. And this is something if you guys are more interested in the history of law, really, really recommend our podcast with Mike Whalen. He kind of went through the entire evolution of this going all the way back to Cravath and Thomas Edison, how you know these things have kind of evolved. But if you think about the model of a law firm, whether it's one partner scaling to five or one partner scaling to, you know, 5,000 and, you know, billing in the billions, we have a situation where these are mostly self-funded, right? So you hang up your shingle, you're able to charge things at a very, very high profit margin, and then you can reinvest that. Generally, you're not going to be walking up to Silicon Valley investors and making a pitch at Kleiner Perkins, or you're not going to be down at Goldman Sachs trying to you know, file for an IPO or something like that, right? So because of that, you're not going to have access to the same capital that these other businesses have access to. The thing is, once this capital kind of comes into the equation, all bets are off, right? So if you want to look at how these things work, and we can look to the cannabis market, or we can look to the market of basically any you know startup that you're familiar with, right? If you want to talk about Uber versus Lyft, or Apple versus Microsoft, or you know Toyota versus Ford, or any of these different things, you start to see once capital is introduced, people start to try to use their capital base as a means to compete. So this is essentially buying market share, right? So we could, I think that, you know, this is kind of my first implication of this is that once, if we have a situation where professionalized capital is going to be entering the market, we're going to see a huge increase in market spending. Um, because the way that these guys think about it is in, you know, spreadsheets and, you know, PowerPoints and looking at market share and these, these sort of things. And basically they don't care how long it takes in the same way that Uber spent billions and billions of dollars to be the app that most people go to when they open their phone. You know, you could imagine that once professional investors get into the picture, people are going to be spending that same kind of money to make sure that, you know, you're the family law attorney that people look at when people are, you know, in that state and needing those needs, right? So it just kind of really, really ratchets up the competition in a lot of different ways. Now, the question becomes, are law firms going to resist this? And I would speculate that the answer is no. So Somewhere, somewhere along the line, unless literally every single, I mean, if we're presupposing that 
state bar is going to make this or, you know, again, for this hypothetical situation, if this happens nationwide, it would have to be sort of a cartel situation where literally everyone resists professional investors. But because, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is probably selling your law practice, somebody's going to fold somewhere along the lines. And once that person folds, then the professional money ends up coming in, that firm starts spending out the wazoo, and then you're going to be at a huge disadvantage if you're not competing with it. So there's going to most likely be a follow-on effect, I would suspect. But again, this huge wave of acquisitions. And if you can even look to the cannabis market, like I said, we are very far away from having national cannabis legalization. So people are just basically buying things up how they can, where they can, with the promise that things are going to eventually become legal down the line, right? Even with Arizona, like they're scaling things out very, very slowly. I think there's only been a handful of pure play non-attorney firms that have been admitted at this point. And I'm recording this in, in May of 2022. But as you can imagine, you know, even if this ends up being a state by state rollout, there's no jurisdiction for these, you know, these investors, right? They're going to be looking at whatever ends up going live. And there's, you know, potentially going to be a wave of acquisitions that comes as soon as the ball ends up dropping, right? So that is one of the implications. The next thing I want to talk about is the potential for getting some different ideas in the space. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to comment on whether this is good or bad, but if you want to look at most people that are running funded startups, most people that are running Fortune 500 companies and most of the people that are running you know, big companies in general, it all tends to be the same kind of person, right? So we're talking about MBAs, Ivy League, people with a good pedigree, you know, working professionally in, in stuff like consulting and iBanking and venture capital. And it's all the same kind of people. Why is this the case? Because that just for the economic model that we have, that's the most effective way to do things in general, right? So, and again, there are absolutely people who have done that kind of work that also happen to be running law firms, but that's in a really, really distinct minority, right? So if you think about the person who is currently running the biggest law firms in the world, that's probably somebody who started off as an associate at some point or started the firm himself and worked crazy, crazy hours and is a lawyer by trade. Not really likely that they're going to have this huge, you know, and it's different. Even if you had somebody who had equal skill sets, let's just say we had a hypothetical person who is a JD and an MBA, whether they started out as a JD or an MBA is going to be very, very different in terms of how they act because they're either going to be viewing the law with the lens of an MBA or they're going to be viewing business with the lens of an attorney. So once we get these people in there, there's, you know, like, like I said, you know, we're talking about the spreadsheets and the PowerPoints and all the super classic stuff that they talk about in MBA school or reading the books of Michael Porter. Those are going to be like things that people start focusing on. Another thing is you know, there's a reason why you see a lot of these people in cahoots with each other, because a lot of the consultants work with investment bankers, and a lot of investment bankers work with consultants. So once we have people that are coming from that background, the access to this capital is going to be a lot more easy, right? So, and again, like I said, there are absolutely people who know these folks and, you know, would have access to these markets, but until they're actually able to invest, which is currently prevented by the rules from the American Bar Organization, it's not something that people are going to be taking into. So, you know, you have these situations where you have these, you know, on paper, crazy stud resumes that are going to be able to, to hop in, do crazy turnarounds, act extremely aggressively and throw a ton of money about it because they have the connections or they have the money themselves to start with, right? And I could see you know, potentially a huge professionalization of the leadership of law firms, not to say that people who are partners at law firms are not professionals, but they are not professional money managers. They do not come from that world. It's going to be a very, very different in how these people are start thinking about things like attacking market share and hiring and you know, providing a you know, different superior client experience type of thing, right? And at the end of the day, it's just one of these situations where like it's, you know, over time too, what you kind of see in most markets is you see attractive profits, competition, which drives the profits down and then things kind of stabilize, right? At the moment, there's a lot of attractive profits and loss. So if we ended up hypothetically going through one of these cycles, we'd have a situation where those profits are going to gradually go down, which is kind of scary, right? But, you know, that's, that's obviously, that's kind of just the consequences of a free market, right? So it's, we have a situation where 
the competition is going to force prices down. And that really kind of speaks to if prices are higher than they should be and profit margins are higher than they should be, they're kept in place by artificial measures, stuff like not allowing professional money to come into the industry. But basically, once these things go in, then theoretically, the way that things are going to go, and this is stuff that you see basically in the industry that is not, you know, the law, <laughs> to, to be completely honest, uh, there's really two strategies that you can have. So one is a cost leadership strategy, uh, you know, aka the Walmart. I've done podcasts on this before. And the other one would just be a specialist strategy. So, you know, being the Rolls Royce, being the, you know, Apple as opposed to, you know, the Nokia, right? Um, and again, that's a way to preserve margins, but you have to have really specialized. So what I kind of predict as being the, you know, the type of law firm that goes extinct is the one that's kind of stuck in the middle, right? It's probably not the best way to run a firm period. And that's something that I have talked about a ton over the course of the podcast, but, you know, for years at this point, but, you know, it's going to be a bad model to a completely unsustainable model if we have the situation where money's coming in to uh, law firms, right? And it's kind of weird to think if we ended up having this super, you know, extrapolated future world where you could actually have a situation where you have to raise money to start a firm at some point, which would be kind of crazy. But again, that's you know, probably decades away at this point, right? But yeah, kind of thinking about this, when if we're going full circle to why uh, states like Arizona have been considering this in the first place, it's for access to justice. So the reason why they want to do this is so more people can have access to the legal services that are, you know, currently restricted to the kind of people who can pay three to five hundred dollars an hour for legal services a lot of times. So in being able to access these things, you know, you can kind of watch people's feet as opposed to their lips and say that, well, okay, if Arizona is considering this, then they are more or less tacitly saying that the legal system isn't efficient. It's not the best way that things could be. So the sort of, you know, opening the borders, removing the tariffs and just kind of seeing what the free market's going to do on this stuff. But yeah, basically full spectrum that this ends up happening and to kind of go into, you know, what's ended up happening very we're recording this again in, in late May of 2022, Florida unanimously voted against uh, these same provisions. And, you know, the Florida state bar is, is definitely a very tough bar and one that takes a lot of this stuff into very, very serious consideration. But Again, this is still something that's happening in two out of 50 states, and you don't really know what's going to you know, go. But basically, if we want to think about what would happen, it kind of goes back into a lot of the stuff that, that people talk about when we're, you know, I'd say the most immediate consequence is a wave of acquisitions. And whenever this ends up happening, I would say probably, you know, 5, 10, 20 years. But if you had a situation where there was a wave of acquisitions happening in your state, in your market, where would you want to be? Um, and the most attractive firm for an acquisition is the one that has the best numbers. It's the one that's you know probably running the best. It's the most automated. You have the best SOPs, good profit margins, all those things. And the funny thing is that when people are talking about acquisitions generally in the business sense, there's kind of an old joke is that if you ever got to the situation where you had a firm that would be you know, very attractive to acquire, it's a firm that wouldn't want to leave because it's running itself. You know, it's making a lot of profits and that kind of thing too. So that's kind of where we're going full circle. If you want to play like there is a huge payday coming in 10 years, you're probably going to be taking the right steps to automate your law firm and try to make things as attractive as possible to a professional investor. So kind of an interesting thought experiment to go to. And, you know, for the record, I'm not going to put like a percentage on it, but I'd say, let me go ahead and do it. <laughs> I'll say I probably think there's a 25 to 50% chance that this becomes standard in the next, let's call it 10, 15 years. And if that ends up being the case, then there's going to be a lot of really big paydays for firms that are running their law firm like a business. And again, think back to some of our recent guests, as far as the people that are going the fastest, that is how the best firms think. And if you are in that situation, not only are you going to be making more money in your firm today, uh, you potentially have a very big payout coming your way in the next uh, 10, 15 years. 
So some food for thought guys and definitely broke my rules and not making a prediction because I did, but <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you guys want more than this, make sure to go ahead and shoot an email to support at caseyield.com. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. If you guys have any opinions, I've seen some really interesting stuff coming from firms in Arizona and Utah on how this stuff has affected them. So if that's something that you guys have any feedback on, I would love to speak more about it. But um, for everyone else, I will see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode. 